That was approximately two minutes and 58 seconds of laughter. You have no idea what they were laughing at, do you? Nor do I. But it's hilarious. It may have been. It may have been. Proverbs 17.22 says that a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. You know, medical research has shown us that laughter is really good for us. Laughter relaxes the whole body. It says a good hearty laugh relieves physical tension and stress, leaving your muscles relaxed for up to 45 minutes afterward. Laughter boosts the immune system. It decreases stress hormones and increases immune cells and infection-fighting antibodies, proving your resistance to disease. It also triggers the release of endorphins, the body's natural feel-good chemicals. Endorphins promote an overall sense of well-being and can even temporarily relieve pain. Laughter also protects the heart. Laughter improves the function of blood vessels and increases blood flow and lowers blood pressure. It's also good exercise. Laughing 100 times has the same effect on the body as being on a rowing machine for 10 minutes or a stationary bike for 15 minutes. I don't know. How do you count laughs? Good question, John. One researcher said this, laughter should be included in a whole person wellness plan. Find what makes you laugh and include it in your daily routine. And here's one more significant fact that I found. I thought this was very interesting given our time together this morning. Children laugh on average 400 times per day. Anybody want to guess how many times adults laugh? On average, 15 times a day. Kids laugh more in an hour than we laugh, we mature folks, laugh in a day. Is it any wonder that Jesus enjoyed being with children so much? They laughed. They were more fun. This morning as we go into week two of this series that we're calling Growing God and Shrinking People in Our Lives, that is, Fearing God and fearing people a whole lot less. I want to look back to the Old Testament, book of Genesis. One of my favorite stories, God brought this to my heart early on, and, and it, is, it is a story that is specifically about laughter, two kinds of laughter, and what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to use laughter as a metaphor for life. We can do that. One, one laugh is a life that is characterized by disappointment and distrust, often or maybe primarily with God for those who claim to be his people. And therefore, that life becomes filled with the fear of people. What they can do to us, what they think of us, what they have for us, how they impact us positively, negatively. And the other laugh that we'll see in the text represents a life that is filled with joy. And it is so because it is lived with a trust and a confidence in God's goodness, flowing out of God's goodness, believing that God is always at work in the circumstances of daily life, bringing what is best for his people. Although, don't interpret best as always comfortable and easy, because if you do that, it'll take you back to the first laugh. And thus, this second laugh believes that God is faithful to his promises and that he's worthy of our trust. So one laugh is a life 
If we can use it that way this morning, that is full of God and the joy that comes from knowing Him and experiencing and believing in His goodness and faithfulness. The other laugh indicates a life that spends much time in doubt and fear and concern of others because God in that life has gotten very small. Um, Doubt of God and fear of people, I think, often go together. I find that true in my life. Doubting shrinks God and his importance in our lives, and it elevates the importance of others. And truthfully, it, it can make people larger than life, and it will steal. It will always steal the joy and the satisfaction that God intends for us to have in him as his people. So, let me just give you a little brief history that leads us to our text this morning. It's going to be in Genesis, uh, starting with chapter 11, and then we're going to, we're going to read uh, together from, from 12. A little history uh, takes us to Abraham and Sarah, the main characters in that story. They were called by God to, to leave their land and, and their people, go to a new land that he would show them. This is what God said to Abraham. At the time, his name was Abram, and her name was Sarai. I will make you into a great nation. God said, I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And so they went. They followed a God, at least Given the evidence that we have in the text, they followed a God that they did not know. Abram, at the time, was 75 years old. His wife, Sarai, was 10 years younger. She was a spring chicken at 65. Oh, and by the way, did I mention they had no children? These folks through whom God was going to make a great nation, they had no children. The the text Chapter 11 of Genesis tells us that Sarai was barren. She had no children. So God was making this promise to a childless couple. Very significant, I think, in the life of these two and certainly for us this morning. Ten years went by. There was all kinds of things that happened in those ten years. God blessed them with great wealth, possessions and servants and livestock, but still there were no children. And in Genesis 16, Sarai took matters into her own hands. And if you've read the story, you know that it says Abram's wife, Sarai, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. I've always felt like he agreed to that a little too quickly. Is there, I don't know. There's just no commentary there, but that, that bothers me. Abram agreed to what Sarah said. Sure, hon, great idea. Hagar got pregnant. And at 86 years old, Abram became the father of Ishmael. For the next 12 to 13 years, there was just all kinds of tension all kinds of junk in their lives because of hard feelings between Hagar and Sarai. Building her family through a maid was a lousy idea. All kinds of drama as a result. But God was faithful to his promise. 
as God always is, faithful to his promises. And he reiterated his promise to them that they would have a child of his choosing and not theirs. He even changed their names to reflect the certainty of that promise. After he had reminded them of what he was going to do, he renamed them and they became Abraham and Sarah. So, we come to Genesis 18 where we're going to read our text this morning. And and I'd like you to keep in mind this truth. We're going to read these, these words together. Abraham and Sarah were already very old. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. Okay, remember those words. That is no exaggeration. He was 99 years old and she was 89. Okay? Let's stand and read together. From Genesis 18. Here we go. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was still at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abram looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, Will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. My brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord. Go ahead and be seated. Interesting story, just full of all kinds of ancient and certainly Mideastern customs. Um, interesting, the, uh, the gift of hospitality and, and the necessity that people felt there was a, there, there was a compelling to, uh, to serve and to wait on those and to be generous to those who were strangers who, who came to their, to their place of dwelling. And of course, there is 
also notably the uh, involvement of the wife. Go do this and go do that. And the husband just kind of stood by and watched it all happen. That plays in to this story. So, Heather, can we put that next slide up? We read these words. So Sarah laughed to herself. This is our first laugh. Metaphor for life, remember. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, yeah, right. After I'm old and worn out, my master is old. This is really going to happen. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah say, well, I really have a child now that I am old? So, knowing what you do about their life up to this point, think just about the brief history that I sort of rehearsed for you. Why did Sarah laugh? But more importantly, what are the feelings and the emotions behind that laugh? What kind of life is represented in her laugh? What kind, of a, what kind of a laugh was that? Talk to your neighbor for a minute. Just about some of those questions. Think about that life, that laughter is metaphor for life. What's going on? Okay, let's have some feedback. Quickly, let's just, let's just hear from a few of you. What's, what's going on? What's, what's that laugh represent? Yeah. Hers died a long time ago. Yes. Okay. What else? This is your neighbor, who also happens to be your life partner. Congratulations. <laughs> Good. Good observation. Oh, yeah. There's some emotion that's tied up with it. You better believe it. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear that? The derision that was there uh, as a result of her following this man with his harebrained idea that God has called them to go and start this new nation. And, and yet the irony that is built into this. You know, is this really going to happen? And of course, we get to read ahead and, and you know, we know what goes on. Emma, what were you going to say? Yeah, yeah. Oh, great pain associated with that, I'm sure. I'm sure. Great theology in Calvin and Hobbes. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, laughter. Again, there's laughter as sort of a metaphor for life and how, how we respond to life. At the risk of sounding too hard on Sarah, I'm going to say... That, that I think, and, and, and all of these things are, are legit, but I think that, that she had allowed her life, and I'm not sure that she could have helped it necessarily, she had allowed her life to become defined by who she was not. She was not a mom. Desperately wanted to be a mom. In that culture, whether we like it or not, and I certainly don't, a woman's worth was often determined by the number of children that she had. And to be fair to Sarah, that was often, no, probably always, driven by the patriarchal society in which she lived. A husband's great desire was to have sons. Lots of sons. Daughters weren't as special sons carry on the family name, have lots of them, because that would reflect well upon him and he would be greatly esteemed in the community as the father of many sons. A little bit of emotion that I think we can read into this text, but I think it's legit. Do you see where it can take us? It's a powerful example of, 
of the fear of people. The fear of people is not just the fear of the person that's standing in front of me. The fear of people are, are, are those feelings and those thoughts and those emotions that shape us based upon the culture in which we live in what that culture says is important. You need to be this and you need to be that. You should have this and you should have that. Despite the abundance of God's blessings upon their lives, and go back and, and read the history between chapter 12 and, and chapter 18, Wow, did God bless them. And yet, they were not, at least Sarah in big part, was not living a life of joy and deep satisfaction in God because because they didn't have the one thing that their culture said was the main thing. Children were the paragon that defined a woman's self-worth. And even that had been promised to them. But God's timeline, as we so often know, is not our timeline. He never consults me. Pretty sure he hasn't consulted you about the way that he ought to do things. So even though that had been promised to them, but but they lived with the social pressures of their culture, what will people think, along with the reality of their old age? The old age that put them well beyond the childbearing years. I think it's... I think it's Paul in Romans 4 that makes a comment on what Abram thought about himself. He considered his own body as good as dead. These were old folks. And I think the the, the pressures and the expectations had forced them early on to take matters into their own hands when they did the Hagar connection. And though it gave Abram a child at that point, it, in many ways, added to their, their misery. Fear of people, my brothers and sisters, is often expressed in concern over what they think of us. And at some point in our lives, we have got to get to a point where we say, I don't care what they think of me. Because that is ultimately not what is important. But we, we give power to people over our lives that they don't deserve to have. And when we do that, we are, we are in a sense taking power away from God. Not literally, but, but in terms of our recognition and our confidence and our trust in Him. And, and what, what often happens, I think, is that we act in ways that are, are grossly inconsistent with people who have given been given so much. You know, many of you, that my daughter is being married in three weeks. My wife said yesterday, it's three weeks from today, and my heart just went, oh my gosh! Not because my daughter's being married, but because of all the projects that I've got to get done before the wedding day. <laughs> Have you been there? I mean, you know, here we are in our house of 13 years, and there's a lot of things that need to be spiffed up and looking nicer. And so we've done a couple of the major spiffs. And one spiff leads to another spiff, to another spiff, to an- and pretty soon I am the most dissatisfied man in the world. And it's all because of this stinking wedding where people are going to come to town and see my house for the first time and we're going to wonder, what do they think? Who cares what they think? But the reality is, that's where I have begun to live my life. I mean, I just got this project list and they grow every time I look around. And the irony is that I'm no longer giving thanks to God for what I have. But I'm complaining and bitter and resentful about what I don't have. 
and I'm mad and tired because I'm not getting it all done. That is a stupid life. And we all live it. Don't get haughty. (laughs) I know you're there. It just may be a different issue for you. God has promised us so much. He's made abundant promises. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul writes, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through Him, the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. God's promises are made to us and they are guaranteed through the life and the death and the resurrection of His Son. Promises like His enduring and unchanging love to us. His promise of faithful and loving fatherhood towards those who are His children. His promise to meet our every need. Boy, do I get my needs and my wants confused. His perfect design that we would find in Him everything that our human heart longs for, both emotionally, psychologically, and in finding those deep needs met, we would find the abundant life that Christ said He came to give to His people. And our challenge is to believe all of this in order to experience life in what I call the reality of the second laugh. The first laugh is a life of dissatisfaction because God has not given to me what I think He should give me. Or God has not come through on His promises in my experience and according to my time frame. We've got to believe and we've got to trust and we've got to have confidence and there's really no other way to say it than that because we call it having faith. The writer of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without God's pleasure, there'll be no no satisfaction in this life, at least certainly not any enduring satisfaction, because we'll give ourselves ultimately to the fear of people again, to their expectations and what they think and what they don't think, and yada, yada, yada. Pleasing others rather than trusting God to be faithful to the promises that He has made us. The things of this life cannot ultimately satisfy those who have been redeemed. If they do, then we probably need to stop and take stock of the status of our redemption. Because God's pleasure comes to those who live with faith and trust in who He is and who He has promised Himself to be. The writer of Hebrews goes on in that same text, chapter 11. It says, anyone who comes to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Second laugh. Second metaphor for life is found in Genesis 21. This is so much fun. Listen to this. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. Of course he was because he said he would be. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Of course he did because he always keeps his promises. Sarah became pregnant. Sarah became pregnant at approximately 89 years old. Don't let that fall on deaf ears. (laughs) Greg, I'm so sorry. (laughs) There's still room at my house before the wedding. (laughs) That life partner thing. Oh my gosh, where were we? Sarah became pregnant 
and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Of course, God had promised it. Abram was a hundred years old. Gave him the name Isaac. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children at her age? No one would have said that. And yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Do you know what the Hebrew meaning of Isaac is? Laughter! Laughter. Laughter has been born in Sarah's life. God has made me laugh. Talk about a double meaning. God has given me laughter. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. I think that's my favorite line in the whole story. Can you imagine all of the elderly ladies gathered for their weekly bridge meeting? (laughs) Or whatever they did in those days. The conversation among all of these elderly women is about their grandchildren and, and their husbands who are getting older. And falling apart. And the aches and the pains of being old. And Sarah arrives at 90 years old with Isaac. And oh, by the way, this is not her grandchild. This is not even her great-grandchild. This is her son. And he's younger than all of the other ladies' grandchildren and great-grandchildren. There she is with diaper bag and paraphernalia and everything else that she needs to take care of this baby. (laughs) At 90 years old. Oh, oh yeah. And, and, and when he got hungry and needed to be fed? Yeah, just go there in your own mind. <laughs> do, you think, do you think Sarah's words came true? Did everyone who heard about the birth of Isaac laugh with her? Are you kidding? Imagine all of the friends as they passed little Isaac around the circle holding this little bundle of joy. And every one of them were eyewitnesses to the faithfulness of God. A God that is so big that he not only hung the universe in place, not only does he put people on the earth and and patterns their lives, but he's big enough and he's powerful enough and yet, intimate enough to take the tired body of a very old woman and rejuvenate its biological processes and bring new life from it. That ought to just be a wow for us, my friends. Last week we talked about those words of Jesus in Luke 12. Don't fear people in what they can do to you. Jesus said, fear God. But then in the next sentence he said, but, but don't be afraid. To fear the Lord, to fear the Lord means to to never doubt His power and His faithfulness. To fear God as His people means that we never doubt His goodness and His ability to bring to pass all that He has chosen for us. The fear of the Lord is a daily action. It is a daily mindset of keeping God at that place of authority in our lives where we tend to want to put people. When Sarah lied about laughing the first time, I think 
it was at least in part because she suddenly had a moment of clarity. One of the mysteries that we have tied into that text is, you know, how did they know that this was God? And, but, but their actions and their words demonstrate that they knew that oof, this was someone really important. And I think Sarah had a moment of clarity in which she realized that she had doubted. That she had doubted the God of the universe, and rather than trusting in him who had shown himself faithful to her through all the years, she had given into doubt, into despair that was fueled by what others might think and say and do and, and their lifestyles that were perhaps different. She had made a conscious decision at some point, I think, to fear people rather than God. And that was indeed a part, I think, of her laughter, original laughter of being fearful. God asked Abraham, is there anything too hard for God? And my guess is that all of us here this morning would say, absolutely not. There's nothing too hard for God. So, if you really believe that, let's do this this week. Spend some time. Get in a quiet place by yourself. And open yourself to God, to the Holy Spirit, who we know well lives and indwells our lives. And say, Spirit of the living God, open my eyes to those people in my life who I have given a position of power. Those people whose opinion I value greatly to the point of maybe making changes that may or may not be necessary. Those people who hold my job in their hands and, Lord, there has been conversation about pink slips and that scares me to death. Lord, I am wondering about that, that report that I'm awaiting from the doctor. You know that that causes great fear in my life. This is the nitty-gritty, my friends. We fear people and the circumstances that those people are a part of. We give people a place of power and position and priority. And then what happens is, we spend a lot of our time living in that, that metaphor of laughter that is filled with doubt and fear and concern and discouragement and what-ifs versus living at that place where God causes hilarious laughter in our lives because we look back and we see what he's done and how he's been faithful. And even though we don't see a way out of this situation, we're able to live in the freedom of knowing his control and his power and his concern and his care. One of the things that I was struck with about that train ride, that silly uh, laughter bout, is that it's contagious. It is contagious. And it seems to me that if we're going to be a people who really are consciously striving to live in fear of the Lord. Remember, that means understanding His place, His promise, His power, His ability, His character. If we live in confident trust of that, even though we don't necessarily see the outcome, probably 99% of the time we won't see the outcome, that kind of living becomes the kind of contagious laughter that I think Isaac and Sarah begin to experience as they spoke and gave evidence to what God had done 
in their lives. Praise team, come on up and lead us as we close this morning. Let me just pray as these folks come. Father, how often I confess to you, I trade fear of the Lord for fear of people. I perceive their place, their power, their control, their authority in my life. And I know that my brothers and sisters here do that as well. And when we do that, we live our lives in that first laugh. Concern and despair. Maybe even a little cynicism and disdain. and Certainly doubt of you. Lord God, I ask that in this week, we as your people would spend time opening our hearts to you and allowing you to point out those persons that we live in fear of. Might not be an individual. Maybe it's, maybe it's a neighbor that we've heard things about. Maybe it's a people group that, that we fear. God, would you begin to do that work of rejuvenation in our lives as you did Sarah's life? Reminding us of your greatness, your faithfulness, your promise, your protection, all of those things that we value so much. May those things begin to penetrate our lives in such a way that instead of fearing others, we begin to love and serve others. Because that is, in fact, what you have called us to do. Keeping you in that high place of authority in our lives. For your glory and your grace, we pray.